0: It's science, but not as you know it. The Naked Scientists.
1: Hello and welcome to The Naked Scientists with me, Helen Scales, and Dave Ansell. Hi, Dave. Hi, Helen. Coming up this week, we'll be hearing slightly sad news about the state of the world's oceans and, on a lighter note, how science can help us build the perfect sandcastle. And Chris has popped across the pond this week and is all the way over in Boston, Massachusetts. We'll be catching up with him later to find out how he's getting on at the AAAS Science Conference.
2: Also on this week's show, we're looking at the science of transplants. We'll hear about a new technique that can keep a liver alive outside the body for longer than ever before.
1: Plus, Diana O'Carroll will be joining us in the studio for this week's smelly question of the week.
2: And in kitchen science, I'll be showing you how we found out that blood flows through your veins.
1: And that's all coming up in today's Naked Scientist. If you want to get in touch, then send us an email, chris at thenakedscientist.com.
0: The Naked Scientist Podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider, on the web at ukfast.net.
1: Now, as always, we'll start off the show with a rundown of this week's science news. And I'm afraid I'm going to start off with some rather gloomy news from the world's oceans. A new study out this week has revealed that there is literally nowhere to hide when it comes to the damaging effects we're having on the seas and oceans, and that over 40% of the world's marine ecosystems are suffering from very high levels of threat. Now, a team of 19 international scientists have drawn up the first ever map of the oceans that show where we're affecting them and by how much. And the study was presented this week at the AAAS in the United States, and we'll be hearing more news from that meeting in a few minutes from Chris. Um, But to gauge the global impact that humans' activities are having on the ocean, this team looked at lots of different threats, including overfishing, pollution, invasive species and global warming. They put these all together, this detailed information together, about all these different threats across all the water bodies of the world um, and then they added the effects up together and um, so that every square kilometer of the oceans was assigned an impact rating ranging from low to high impact. Now if you take a look at the map and we'll put a link up on the Naked Scientist website so you can have a look at what we're talking about um, you'll see that a lot of the oceans are colored in yellow or orange Now, these are the areas where there's a medium to high level impact and there's really quite a lot of that there. There's also quite a bit of green, which are the areas where relatively low impact is going on and just a few tiny patches that you can hardly see of blue. Now, these are the areas where there's really suffering from only a very low impact and they're clustered around the North and South Poles. Um, Now, what's really obvious and perhaps most depressing is the, the red patches, bright red patches, where there's really bad stuff going on, where there's multiple threats having impacts at the same time. Now, these red areas in the oceans are in in various parts of the world. They include the British Isles in the North Sea, um, in the Mediterranean, in the Caribbean... Um, on the eastern seaboard of the United States, as well as in Asia and the Persian Gulf. So what this map does, apart from getting us slightly depressed about the state of the oceans, is hopefully that um, something more positive can be done, um, which it gives us a really the bigger picture, if you like, of what's going on in the oceans, and hopefully to allow us to better plan um, for how best to protect the oceans in the future from all these ongoing impacts from the world's growing human population.
2: I guess the question for that sort of thing is how bad is is, bad, is a bad threat? Because you can all, you can say anything's bad. You could say that two um, crisp Packets in an ocean was a bad threat if you were that way inclined. You're
1: absolutely right, Dave. Actually, it's all relative. You know, if you put anything on a scale, something's good, and something's bad. Um, I think um, these sort of red areas, like these sort of most highest impact, I forget exactly how they are measuring um, what kind of units they're using, but I think what we're looking at there is these multiple really kind of um, hard hitting effects if you like so it's not just areas that are affected by overfishing but they've also got already temperatures increasing significantly from global climate change as well as oceans becoming more acidic from increased carbon dioxide levels so i think you know in all these different ways measure threats measured in different ways it's the cumulative effect of all those together that's causing sort of real problems and areas where we're seeing great changes already so it's not particularly good news but it isn't the end of the world um, yet and we we can sort of preempt what's going on and hopefully make a difference
2: OK, brilliant. Right Now, on a slightly lighter note, um, slightly less depressing, I've got a nice little story about showing how cutting-edge science you can find in the most everyday of items. And you've probably made quite a lot of sandcastles in your life, Helen.
1: What are you saying? Is that what marine <laughs> biologists spend their time doing? We, well, yes, occasionally, I admit.
2: Now, have you ever wondered why it's quite so easy? Not necessarily to build a beautiful sandcastles with all the turrets and make it look beautiful, but actually just to make damp sand stick together?
1: It just seem to me fairly obvious that a dry sand doesn't... It just tumbles down and you, you can't build anything upwards if it's just dry. So make it wet and that's all you need to do.
2: Yeah, that's, that's actually what's what's quite fascinating about it because you can mix anywhere between about 1% water in your sand mix and at least 20% or more of water, water in your sand. And the sand actually behaves almost identically. Its strength is exactly the same. You can change the amount of water hugely and it has no effect. Now, you may have not have asked this question, but Mario Scheel in the Max Planck Institute in Gotham Gottingham in Germany did. Um, but actually finding out the answer to what's going on is quite difficult because it's a three-dimensional problem because you've got all these sand grains all in three dimensions and water interacting with it. So you can't just look at it and find out what's going on. So what you had to use was something called an X-ray microtomography. This is a miniature version of a CAT scanner you find in hospitals, which takes a series of X ray images from lots of different directions and uses a computer to put them together into a three D model. So you can see where the water is and where the sand is. So they took 3D images, lots of different piles of sand with different amounts of water and measured the properties of the mixtures as well. Now what seems to be happening is the water forms little bridges between the sand grains that look a bit like two um, bells from a trumpet glued together, a little bit of water in between the two sand grains. And then the surface tension from this water tends to pull the grains together, together, giving the wet sand its strength. But you'd have thought the more water you add the more bridges you get and eventually it would just get really, really strong. But actually what happens is once you get beyond about 1% of water um, you don't actually get that Many more bridges because the bridges tend to start merging together so instead of getting um, lots of small bridges you get the same sort of number of bigger bridges which aren't actually any stronger than the small ones Um, so this tends to mean that there's no change in strength at all now this might just sound like fascinating news for the under eights but understanding (laughs) how granular materials behave is really important to understanding how soils behave you're going to build a building how concrete flows and stability of slopes amongst loads and loads of other things
1: so is there, um, is there a secret to building the best sandcastle then?
2: I think basically it is. There's not much of a secret. You can just use any it. kind of huge change. Surely
1: once you get too much water there, it'll, then, it'll all just sort of fall apart.
2: Yes, if you get far too much water, then you, stop, then you stop getting the bubbles in between. You don't get the air in between, so the surface tension doesn't act, so it gets really weak again. So you've got to have the mixture of the air, the water and the sand to make it quite strong. Now I think we can go over to Chris, who's over in Boston at the AAAS conference. Are you there, Chris? Hello Dave. What have you been looking at over there?
3: Well I thought before we started talking about the conference we should talk about a great bit of science which has come out this week, a piece of science news which has come from the US because it's very relevant to science at home and this relates to the problem of MRSA, the methicillin resistant staphylococcus aureus, the superbug which actually causes about 5,000 deaths every single year in the UK, about 20,000 here in America and part of the problem why it's such a Virulent bacterium is because not only is it resistant to antibiotics, but these bacteria have evolved very clever strategies that enable them to outpace or outwit our immune system. Now, if you look at Staphylococcus aureus, which MRSA is a form of, when it grows in a dish, the colonies are a bright yellow color. And the reason that, that's why we call it golden staph, but the reason they're bright yellow is because staph makes a chemical called carotenoid. And these carotenoids are antioxidant molecules. It's the same family of chemicals, actually, that make carrots look orange. But they're very powerful antioxidants. And one of the ways in which our immune system tries to destroy bacteria is by cells called phagocytes, neutrophils, releasing things like free radicals into the environment where the bacteria are. And those free radicals then jump on the bacteria and damage them. But because the bacteria are stuffed with these antioxidants, it stops them actually being damaged, and so the bacteria can grow unim- unim- unimpeded. What a group of researchers, including Victor Nizet and-, and Eric Oldfield here in the States, have done, though, is to actually look at how they make the, that yellow pigment, the carotenoid pigments, and to find out whether they can stop them making that. So the first sort of breakthrough was the guys at University of California, San Diego, Victor Nizza and his colleagues. They knocked out the genes in the bacteria that enabled them to make this yellow pigment. And they found that these Staph aureus bacteria, when they did this to them, became vulnerable to the immune attack again. And then Eric Oldfield at the University of Illinois noticed that the chemicals that the bacteria used to make these carotenoid chemicals are identical to the building blocks used in the human body to make cholesterol. So he wondered, if we give bacteria cholesterol-lowering drugs, will this stop them making these antioxidants, and will this make them effectively vulnerable to the attack of the immune system so you can turn a superbug into a sensitive bug again? So they found some some families of chemicals, and these are called squalene synthase inhibitors, and they were an early generation of cholesterol-lowering drugs. They're not used anymore, but they were tried for a while. They started adding them to Staph aureus, And the staph became fully sensitive, and the immune system could destroy staph aureus much more easily. And so they're looking at these compounds. One of them is called BPH652. They found it's very effective, and because it's already been tested in limited clinical trials on humans, it could well make a very valid contribution and and be added to our present spectrum of of things that we use to tackle bugs and bacterial infections in patients.
1: (laughs) Uh, Chris, is there any reason you think that this kind of approach might not lead to the kind of resistance that we're seeing already in the future? Is there any reason this might be more effective at preventing that kind of resistance happening in these bugs?
3: I think that there's every reason that the target, the enzyme that this drug hits could adapt in the same way that bacteria do become resistant anyway but at a time when we're running out of options therapeutically and that there are bacteria knocking around now that are increasingly resistant some of them resistant to pretty much every antibiotic we have the more chances we have to stop them and the more ways we have of making them vulnerable the better so it's not a question of saying we shouldn't do it because it it will eventually get some kind of uh, resistance on the part of the bacteria that's probably an inevitability anyway so it's just an additional thing we can do to try and make these bacteria vulnerable and make patients
2: Better. Um, one other thing, Chris. Uh, if these carotenoid, carotenoids, um, if, could you get lots of them by eating carrots and that make your body less able to fight bacteria, any other bacteria?
3: Uh, No, because the bacteria are making these things and putting them inside their their own bacterial cells in just the right place to mop up the free radicals that the immune system would squirt onto them. Carotenoids are very useful and very important in our body and beta-carotene, which is the the orange chemical in carrots, is two vitamin A molecules stuck together. And when you eat the carrots, the uh, two... Um, molecules are cleaved apart and you end up with vitamin A in the tissues where you need them. And so we do need carotenoids and antioxidants in our body and they end up in the right place. So paradoxically, being on antioxidants might help your immune system to work better, not disable your immune system. So there's no danger that by, by boosting your own carotenoid count that you'll be making yourself vu- more vulnerable to infection. That doesn't
1: happen. Sounds like great news for for those kind of problems we have with bugs. But Chris, you're over the pond in the States. Um, what's up? Tell us about the AAAS.
4: Well,
3: this is the American Association for the Advancement of Science, which is a big organization in America that publishes the journal Science. And every year they have a conference, which is in a different U.S. city. So last year it was in San Francisco. The year before that it was in St. Louis. This year it's the turn of Boston. And so funnily enough, we've got a program from two Cambridges this week because Cambridge, Massachusetts, where I am, just up the road, um, is, is where is the Cambridge on this side of the Atlantic and you're in the Cambridge on the other side of the Atlantic. But what we've had is a series of scientists who are publishing new work newly emerging results, and it's really being showcased here at the conference. And there was one thing which really caught my eye yesterday, which was presented at one of the press conferences, and I thought I'd talk about that for a second, which is that we've all heard the myth or the claim that if you put estrogens into the drinking water, then, or into uh, the river water, then you can end up with fish changing sex and becoming females if they're male.
1: That's uh, if things like with women taking the pill. Is that right? That it gets into the toilets and that when we urinate, and that that gets into the water systems. Is that one way that oestrogen gets in the water?
3: yes that's right so it gets into sewage treatment and it comes out of the sewage into the river water if you don't treat the sewage properly and there was a claim that it would make fish change sex but it had never been properly tested thoroughly and scientifically it's just observational and so a researcher called Karen Kidd, and she works in Canada the University of New Brunswick got permission to do a six-year experiment where they took a lake and they added female hormones estrogens like you would find in the oral contraceptive to this lake every year for three years to get the same concentration in the lake water as you would see in rivers downstream of sewage outflows and they monitored what happened to the fish population and they confirmed very quickly that certain fish such as short-lived fish like fathead minnows that live in these lakes very quickly the males began to feminize so they started producing egg proteins they started producing eggs in some cases and also their fertility went down so the population of those fish quite rapidly crashed and the reason it crashed they found is because the fish are very short-lived they only live for two years they breed and then die and so if you have short-lived populations of fish like that, and you stop them breeding, then the population will dramatically reduce. So it does have a big impact. But then there was a really big twist in the tail. And that is that there was an unforeseen effect. And that is that there are fish that eat those fish. And they, so big, long-lived fish that aren't affected by the estrogens because they're losing their food source, their numbers drop down as well. So there's a sort of double-edged effect of estrogens in the drinking water, which is pretty bad news. But there is a silver lining to the story, which is that the estrogens are relatively easy to remove from the drinking water and they only have a very short half-life of 12 days in the environment. So if we clean up the sewage a bit better, then we would hope that the fish populations will recover because in this lake in Canada, after just three years, the populations got back to normal once they stopped adding the estrogens.
1: So it sounds like uh, that is one one of those problems of the oceans that I've mentioned and, and of lakes and so on that perhaps we can do something about which is really good news, but also highlights, I think, like um, you say, the, kind of in- the complex effects that we can have just from one species initially cascading through the rest of the ecosystem. So you, it's very hard to predict just what's going to happen when we make these kind of changes.
3: Yes, because the, there's such a dense network of every species is reliant on so many other species, if you change one, the whole web goes out of shape, often in ways that you could never have predicted or foreseen. Luckily here, it looks like it would be relatively easy to remedy this situation. And I did actually ask Karen Kidd, should we tell women they're not allowed to take the oral contraceptive pill anymore? And she said, no, absolutely not. There's 100 million women all around the world that would be very disappointed if you said that. (laughs) So, no, the answer is to clean up sewage better. And then hopefully the environment will reset itself and get back to normal.
1: Sounds good. Sounds good. Thanks, Chris. Thank you. So that was Chris talking to us all the way from the States, at so the AAAS. I'm sure he'll have lots more to tell us when he gets back next week. Um, you are listening to The Naked Scientists. If you're online, why don't you send us an email, chris at com.
0: Laying the facts bare, The Naked
2: Scientists.
1: You're listening to The Naked Scientists. Now, Dave, is it time for kitchen science this week? What are we up to this week?
2: Well, this week we're going to do actually quite a famous historical experiment, which was done about 300 years ago. So what, all you need for this experiment is an arm. ideally one with some, I have a couple of those, that's a, fine. That, that's always a good start. Good. Uh, ideally with some nice prominent um, veins. So if you don't have any nice prominent veins, just wander around and find, find someone who has.
1: OK, right, look uh, out for some veins, excellent. And then
2: the other piece of technical scientific equipment you need is a couple of fingers.
1: Right, I can do other. that too.
2: Good, good. <laughs> so what you want to do is find a vein on your arm, put two fingers on it, And then push down and then push the finger which is closest to your body away from the other one and just squeeze it along the vein. And you should find that the vein becomes a lot less coloured.
1: Okay, so it doesn't matter exactly where on your arm this is as long as it's somewhere that you can see.
2: Yeah, a good veiny bit Okay, you can see nicely.
1: So I can see you're trying this now on your wrist, so that's good.
2: And then all we want you to do is first lift off one finger and see what happens. And then repeat the thing, repeat it, push your two fingers apart and then lift off the other one and see if there's any difference. And if there is, give us a call.
1: That sounds very simple. Excellent. So I would like everyone out there right now, there's no excuses, um, no technical equipment here to have a go at this. Um, And like I said, you can email us, chris at thenakedscientist.com. Now, as well as taking part in the AAAS, um, Chris has been also finding time to visit the Massachusetts General Hospital to meet up with transplant scientist Professor Megan Sykes.
5: One of the biggest breakthroughs in the transplantation field has been the discovery of immunosuppressants, These are drugs that can partially switch off the immune system to prevent it from rejecting what the body sees as foreign tissue, or non-self, in a donor organ. But this comes at a cost, because the drugs are quite toxic, and immunosuppressed patients are also more vulnerable to infections and cancers. Instead, scientists have been searching for ways to persuade the immune system to accept the new foreign tissue in a donor organ as its own. Harvard's Professor Megan Sykes and her colleagues have now managed to do that by giving patients a partial bone marrow transplant collected from the same donor as the kidney they're receiving. Somehow, the new bone marrow re-educates the immune system so that it subsequently ignores the new kidney and the patients no longer require any kind of immunosuppression.
6: Since the very first time that allogeneic transplants were performed, that means transplants from one individual to another, we've known that there's this rejection response that will destroy the graft unless something is done to prevent it. So the success of allogeneic transplantation in patients in the last quarter century or so has depended on the use of immunosuppressive drugs that suppress the immune system in a way that prevents the rejection of the graft. There, there are some consequences of doing that, though, aren't there? Yes. The trouble with that is that these immunosuppressive drugs suppress all immune responses so that uh, the immune system is very generally compromised. And what that means is that the recipient is predisposed to develop infections and also cancers, malignant diseases, because it turns out the immune system is needed to protect us from, from developing cancers. And so these are very serious side effects. And in addition, there are a number of metabolic side effects associated with these drugs uh, and other unpleasant uh, side effects that, that people would like to avoid.
7: Why can't we reprogram the immune system to, to try to ignore what we're putting into the body and say, this kidney I'm putting in is friend, not foe. Don't attack it.
6: Well, that's exactly what we have been attempting to do for quite a long time now and that we seem to have achieved in a small group of patients on a pilot study. The approach that we have used involves the use of bone marrow, which contains cells that can form all of the blood-forming cells in the body. And it's been known for quite some many years now that if bone marrow of two different individuals exists in one recipient that the donor bone marrow will educate the immune system in a way that allows the immune system to regard the donor as self. And so the situation that you just described is created. The Any graft from that same donor is ignored because it looks like self. The immune system has been educated to think that that graft itself
7: so what you're saying is that when you gave someone a kidney transplant if you give them a a bone marrow transplant at the same time you can change what the immune system recognizes as friend and foe
6: that's right that's the idea now what I've just described has been well established in animal models for a while now and we have a pretty good understanding of how it works in the animal models the problem is how do you go from an animal model to patients? And patients who get organ transplants in general do quite well early on, especially in the first few years. Another problem that I haven't mentioned yet with organ transplants as it is performed is that despite all the chronic non-specific immunosuppressive therapy, there's a late phase of graft rejection called chronic rejection that really hasn't been improved by all this immunosuppressive therapy. So many grafts are lost in the 5-, 10-, 15-year period after the transplant. If we had this state where the immune system is reeducated, as we've described, not only would we not need immunosuppressive drugs, but this more chronic type of rejection would also be prevented.
7: So could you just talk us through, step by step, what you did in the the pilot study you've done with these patients?
6: Yes. What it involves is giving the recipient some chemotherapy, but at a dose that is well below the dose that is used in a conventional bone marrow transplant, and giving a drug that is an antibody that causes depletion of the rejecting lymphocytes, the T-cells in the recipient, and also affects the T-cells in the donor, bone marrow graft.
7: So you end up with a patient who, for a while at least, has has got two types of bone marrow. They've got the donor who's going to give them, say, the kidney, Mm -hmm. and they've got their own bone marrow as well.
6: Right, that's exactly right.
7: And then you put in the donor organ, and at that time the immune system now is being told, because the bone marrow is the same don't reject this organ.
6: Right. So the kidney and the bone marrow are actually given at the same time, and the bone marrow is present in the circulation for a period of just a few weeks, and together the bone marrow-derived cells and the kidney itself are doing some complex things that we're still trying to understand to re-educate the immune system and uh, allow it to regard the kidney itself.
7: And in the patients that you've tested this on so far, what's been the outcome, and are things still working for them now?
6: Uh, we've done five patients in this pilot study, and four of them are currently doing very well. They've been off immunosuppression for a number of years. Um, one is approaching five years, and their kidneys are being accepted despite the lack of any immunosuppressive drugs.
7: So you've proved that this can work at least in a small scale, with kidney transplants. What about other organs, livers, hearts, lungs, things like that?
6: Um, The timing of the protocol is such that the organ and the bone marrow need to be transplanted at exactly the same time, and yet the treatment of the recipient, the preparation for the transplant, has to begin five or six days beforehand. So you need to know ahead of time that you're going to do this transplant. So at the moment, this exact protocol limits us to live donors, and the types of organs that are transplanted from living donors right now include kidneys and partial livers and sometimes lungs, but hearts at the moment uh, would not be relevant with this protocol. However, the overall idea certainly does work in animal models for any type of graft from the donor, and so... One of the things that we're working on in our animal models is modifying the regimen so that it will be possible to time it in a way that that any organ could be transplanted.
2: That was Professor Megan Sykes talking with Chris Smith in Boston earlier this week. Megan's the Associate Director of the Transplantation Biology Research Centre in the Massachusetts General Hospital. The research she was describing was published recently in the New England Journal of Medicine.
1: And so as Megan was explaining, um, their system is currently only suitable for live transport, transplant donors because patients have to be prepared for five or six days in advance before transplant for, um, for the technique to work. But um, most d- donor organs won't survive that long. Um, we just don't have that luxury of being able to prepare in advance. Um, but that could all be about to change because two Oxford scientists, Dr Constantin Cuscio and Professor Peter Friend, have developed a way to keep organs in pristine condition outside the body. Now, they're here with us in the studio today, joining us to talk about this. Hi, guys. Hi, Peter. Hello. And uh, hi, Constance. Hello. Thanks very much for joining us. Um, I wonder if perhaps we could start by just um, outlining what what is it that that goes wrong with organs um, when they're in transit? How can they get damaged normally? Peter, I wonder if you could help out there.
8: Well the problem essentially is that, that we, uh, we remove organs, uh, deprive them of their oxygen, blood supply um, and to, to restrict the amount of damage that, that that occurs we cool them down and we all know that when we put biological tissue, meat, into a refrigerator it lasts longer but it doesn't last forever and that the, the cells continue to uh, metabolise, they continue to function but at a much, much lower rate, uh, uh, about 10 times slower. But there is still a limit to how long you can uh, maintain a cell alive under those circumstances. At the moment for transplants, uh, for kidneys, um, you can store a kidney for up to about 24 hours. uh, But we do know the longer you store it, uh, the more the the problems are likely to be thereafter. And
1: so the longer you store it, is that more likely that it it just won't take when when you transplant it? Well, it's
8: got an increased risk of not working at all. Mm -hmm. uh, But if it does work, it's likely to work less well and, 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 and for a shorter time.
1: And so at the moment the technology is essentially put the organs on ice, is that as, as simple as it is really?
8: Well the technology is essentially per, um, perfusing the organ with a specialised solution which is designed to p- protect the cells from swelling and putting it on ice to reduce the metabolic rate. Uh, and that's as you say r- rather a simple concept and one which is, of course has worked quite well for a number of decades but it has uh, severe limitations.
1: Um, so, Constantine, perhaps I'll bring you in here as well, um, and say, um, how are you now addressing this problem? What's the, what are the technological changes that you've come up with to address this issue of, um, of organs surviving alive, if you like, outside the human body?
9: Well, we've long held this belief that uh, cold is good, but warm is better, and in fact, um, organs are designed to, to to work and operate and be stored at normal body temperature. And we um, wanted to come up with a way which it would effectively allow us to store an organ in such a state that it would never know it had left the human body. So what we started working on um, was essentially developing the technology which would allow us to maintain an organ at normal body temperature whilst perfusing it with whole blood, feeding it in such a way that it was uh, undergoing the same function as it would be in, in, in normally within the body.
1: So you're almost kind of trying to trick it into thinking that it hasn't left the body at all?
9: Precisely, and 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 the the the, the major um, the fundamental assumption there is that in in, in cold preservation, as Peter just um, stated a couple of minutes ago, you have damage in proportion to storage time. Whilst if you're able to maintain an organ in normal, active, metabolic, uh, and synthetic state, what what will happen is that there will be no such damage in proportion to storage time.
1: Okay, so keeping it, um, the organs in a system that that is, is trying to trick it into thinking it's in a body cell. That that's also sounds quite straightforward. It, it isn't, is it?
9: <laughs> People have in fact been trying to do it for um, over 100 years and one of the major challenges, which is particularly true for the liver, which is the main organ we've been focusing on so far, is that it dramatically changes its vascular resistance to flow. So what, depending on whether we're sleeping or eating or drinking, uh, the amount of flow that the liver will allow through itself which will change dramatically. Um, and the, the, the major innovation in what we have been doing and the reason why we believe what we've been doing works um, much better than previous attempts is that it allows the organ to autoregulate its blood supply. It's effectively a system designed around the organ which under no circumstances forces blood through the organ. Wh- what we end up with is something very exciting. is a liver that, for example, manufactures bile outside the human body just the way it would within the human body itself. So
2: are you basically just pumping a constant pressure rather than pushing a certain amount of blood through every second? Uh,
8: the, the object is to, is to maintain completely normal physiological parameters in terms of both flows and pressures. And the, the liver in particular is complex. It has a dual blood supply, one, one a vein, high flow, uh, low pressure, and the other an artery, high pressure, lower flow. Very complex What actually happens inside the liver is relatively poorly understood in those those terms. But what we've done is to generate a system which which places the liver in a a completely physiological environment.
2: What is it which is actually limiting the life of the livers which you're using at the moment?
8: We we, we haven't tested the the hypothesis, as it were, to destruction, so we don't know. We know that uh, livers will survive and function apparently normally in isolation for periods of, of up to three days. We, we haven't done the, uh, you know, the ultimate experiment, if you like, to see how long they will go, uh, but, but there are some, some complex uh, sort of biomedical engineering challenges in, in, terms of, in terms of, for example, damage to red cells in an artificial uh, circuit, uh, which will, will become limiting at,
9: at some point. The major limiting factor so far, if I may add, has been lack of sleep for the investigators concerned. (laughs) Um, Because at 72 hours with a given team of a given size, eventually someone has got to go to bed. But we very much hope that with the advances of automation and integration that we're um, quickly getting into, we'll be able to test it to destruction.
2: So if you can keep the liver for a long period of time, does this mean that you can match donor livers to Um, people eat recipients much better because you don't have to have them both ready at exactly the same time.
8: Well there are two huge potential advantages one of which is we can start to take organs that we would previously have been discarded, organs that have been damaged, organs that are are, uh, causing concern as to whether they're going to work Uh, and we, we, we have good evidence now that we can actually resuscitate, improve the performance of an organ before it's transplanted. We can also measure how well it works before it's transplanted so there's no risk as it were to the patient receiving the organ and it's, it's already been been tested uh, so, so that's a, 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 a very large advantage uh, the, other, um, the other advantage which I think you were alluding to was if you can keep the organ for long enough you can start to do some very complex um, um, interventions in terms of the matching between the donor and the recipient and you were hearing from Professor Sykes a few moments ago about one very very interesting intervention which is a bone marrow transplant uh, but that requires time uh, before the transplant takes place, now this sort of technology starts to open up strategies of this sort, not just the one that we 've heard about but others uh, which would improve the immunological uh, outcome following the transplant
1: and uh, so you 're focusing at the moment on the liver, um, and presumably would this kind of technology be applicable to other organs? Are there other organs um, perhaps that are even more of a challenge to to take to keep alive outside the human body
9: indeed uh, the, the the principle, as I said, the governing principle which has has made this invention work is a principle of auto regulation and and the principles behind it are certainly applicable to all organs that do not act as their own pump, so all organs excluding the heart and in particular. Um, the liver, the kidney, the pancreas, um, the small bowel, potentially, um, the lungs in isolation are all potential candidates for use with this technology. But the, the, the fundamental difference and the thing that makes this exciting is that in a cold preservation context, you do not have a functioning organ during the period of preservation. In, 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 in this paradigm, you've actually got a fully functioning organ that can be quantitatively assessed prior to transplantation. And that's really quite exciting.
1: So, um, so Peter, how close are we to seeing this actually happening in a hospital, in emergency rooms? This kind of technology might be applied.
8: Well, we've done a lot of work on this, working on a on a an animal model. Uh, we're confident that the system works. We've we've gone all the way through with with transplants, and it, it's clearly an advance. Uh, we're currently engaged on uh, developing prototypes which can be used in patients and clearly that's that's something which has to be developed um, but we are looking to carrying out limited clinical trials w- within the next year or two uh, it's it's not very far away
1: that sounds fantastic well thanks guys so much for coming in and talking to us about that um, they'll be staying with us in the studio f- for the rest of the show i believe so if any of our listeners at home um have any questions about um the transplanting organs, um, the kind of technologies that are going on, what might happen, how it might improve this case for patients who need um, organs. You can email us, chris, at com.
0: The Naked Scientist podcast, brought to you by thenakedscientist.com.
1: Now, um, we've been talking this week on The Naked Scientists about organ doning and donations and transplanting and the kind of challenges that that uh, brings us. And we have now, I hope, on the line Dr. Stefan Krenn from the University of Minnesota, who's going to talk to us about um, some breakthroughs um, in the transplanting of hearts. Dr. Stefan, are you there? Hello. Yeah. Hello, hello. Hi, Stefan. Hi- Excellent. Thank you very much for joining us. Sure. Now um, I wonder if you could, first of all, just tell us a little bit about um, your beating hearts and what's been going on in your laboratory.
10: Sure. Um, You know, this is really sort of a, you know, an outgrowth of uh, what's usually regarded as uh, tissue engineering, and the the elements, um, you know, to create a tissue are typically cells, which um, you know we can get from a variety of sources, and uh, a scaffold. In this case, we've developed a uh, process whereby, uh, with detergent perfusion, we can remove all the cells from a solid organ, leaving the extracellular matrix, the protein that the cells excrete. This forms a uh, remarkably detailed scaffold that represents the organ in three dimensions, uh, but is completely acellular. Then, uh, using three dimensional tissue culture techniques, we can add cells back. And um, you know, create a new tissue that hangs on that scaffold.
1: So and you're basically you're sort of making a a mold, if you like, in the shape of the organ that you want, and then filling it in with cells that make that organ. Is, is that right. really
10: and it? It's, it's even better in a, in a sense than a mold because um, our process retains proteins that uh, we believe um, guide cells to do what they need to do, um, that cue cells to. Uh, you know, in the case of undifferentiated cells, perhaps cue them to um, what they should turn into uh, for that particular spot in the tissue.
2: So the sort of almost like some kind of instruction manual inside the structure which you've got, le- which you've got left, which tells a stem cell that I should, you should be part of a blood vessel or you should be a, a muscle cell or something that's like right, that? That's right,
10: that's right. And so we're, we're hoping to, A, understand that cell signaling phenomena and, B, use it to our advantage to create, you know, the details in a tissue that we wouldn't be able to do just by um, providing cells alone.
2: So you've basically, you've taken a heart. What, what kind of heart were you using?
10: Uh, in this case, rat.
2: So you've taken a heart, then you've just sort of cleaned it out of all the cells, and then you just injected some stem cells, and it suddenly grows back into a working heart?
10: Well, um, in this case, in this report, uh, in nature, we used neonatal cardiomyocytes. They're not stem cells. They're differentiated. They're, um, you know, young rat heart muscle cells. So we sort of short-circuited the, um, the whole differentiation issue for this particular experiment. You know, the way we view this um, going forward in a transplant context, we would like the cells that we use to be autologous to come from the patient, so, so would you for be, instance,
1: Oh, sorry. So are you extracting uh, stem cells from the bone marrow, for example? or Could be. Mm-hmm.
10: Um, our laboratory has also found uh, progenitor cells in adult cardiac tissue.
1: So and actually from the heart that you're going to replace?
10: This could be a possible source. So, you know, it, I mean, the way we see this is superior to... Um, cadaveric organ donation is that, uh, in theory, grown from your own tissue, um, the entire construct would be autologous, save for uh, the matrix itself. And, you know, worst case scenario, if the matrix was immunogenic, um, that's rapidly turned over by smooth muscle cells. And so perhaps after a, you know, a relatively short course of immunosuppression, the autologous cells would create, you know, turn over that matrix protein, and it would become You in totality.
2: So the idea is you take somebody else's heart from, um, but it doesn't have to be very good because it doesn't have to be working anymore, and then inject it with your own cells, and then it would grow into a heart, then you could transplant that into you. That's right. And it should start working. Is there any way that a human heart should be more difficult than a rat heart?
10: Well, um, there's certainly a matter of scale, and as a substitute, we've uh, used uh, porcine tissue, uh, cadaveric porcine hearts. To a sort of proof of principle of scaling this process to uh, human sized organs. Now, at this point, we've successfully decellularized you know, a variety of porcelain organs, not just the heart, also kidney, liver, gallbladder. Now, the scaling issue as far as the recell experiment is sort of beyond our you know, mainly economic uh, capabilities.
2: Just, you need many more cells, exactly. which are expensive. I mean,
10: we would have to devote you know, every square inch of. Uh, tissue culture capacity <laughs> we have to uh, to create the cells, but at this point I don't really see that being a big issue.
1: Cool. How do you see the way forward then in terms of are we going to see this technology developed? You know, actually used I- in clinical situations.
10: Well, I think that even even before that, um, we're gonna we're gonna learn a tremendous amount of basic science about uh, cell signaling. Uh, there may even be sort of medical products along the way. Uh, that are not entire replacement hearts. I mean, for instance, uh, it may be that uh, our tissue is a successful left ventricular patch in the case of uh, an infarcted heart, for instance. So there may be steps along the way where this is, you know, a useful technology, but stop short of a complete replacement heart.
1: Thanks Stefan. That was Dr Stefan Krenn from the University of Minnesota with proof of princi- in principle that in the future organs for transplant could be grown from your own worn out organs and some stem cells.
2: Now it's time to welcome Dinah O'Carroll back to the studio to take on this week's question of the week.
11: Hi Dave, this week I'm going to be sniffing at Thomas Hardy.
3: Hi, this is Thomas from Uttlesford and I'm a science teacher. This is my question. What is the smell of old books? The older the book, the better it smells. I'm not talking about the old moldy smell of an ill-kept book. I'm talking about the heartwarming smell of a book you've loved and kept for 20 years. So what is the smell of old books?
11: So uh, do some classics smell better than others? Let's find out. My name is Jana
4: Kolar, and I'm head of the Laboratory for Cultural Heritage at the National and University Library. Of Slovenia. A smell or an odor is caused by volatile compounds which we perceive by the sense of olfaction. An odor of a book is a complex mixture of odorous volatiles emitted by different materials from which books are made. Due to the different materials used for book production throughout the history, there is no one characteristic odor of old books. A professional perfumer has evaluated 70 odorous volatiles emitted from books and described their smell as dusty, musty, moldy, paper-like, or dry. Pleasant, aromatic smell is due to aromatic compounds emitted mainly by papers made from ground wood, which are characterized by their yellowish-brown color. They emit vanilla-like, sweetly fragrant vanillin, aromatic anisole, and benzaldehyde with fruity, almond-like odor. On the other hand, terpen compounds, deriving from rosin, which is used to make paper more impermeable to inks, contribute to the camphorous, oily and woody smell of books. A mushroom odor is caused by some other intensely fragrant aliphatic alcohols. A typical odor of old book is thus determined by a complex mixture of fragrant volatiles and is not dominated by any single compound. Not all books smell the same.
11: So according to Jana, books made from trees break down into the best smellers. Synthetic materials that go into the more modern book just don't tend to release great aromas.
2: Also, Eric on the forum got it exactly right and also added that before the 19th century, water resistance was obtained by using animal glue from bones. This is where the term rag rag and bone, rag and bone man, comes from because these were collected by people wandering around with horses and carts um, to make glue out of. Um, We now use papermakers' alum, which is aluminium phosphate, to fix the resin and prevent it from being broken down by water.
11: So the old way is best then in terms of getting the best smelling book, I think anyway uh, another listener wanted to know how is it that we detect that smell
8: hi
2: i'm john montserrat from cambridge mass in the usa when i hear music i have a perception in my brain about how noisy it is Uh, loud things always feel loud to me and quiet things always seem quiet of course it doesn't matter whether it's a high note or a low note or a trumpet or a piano my sense of how big the noise is is always
4: accurate so my question is How accurate is my sense of bigness for smell?
2: When I sense a very strong smell like rotten food, does that mean there's a lot of this odour in the air? Or can my nose play tricks on me by being super sensitive to some smells
10: that are actually tiny?
11: And after that, we'll be looking at greenhouse gases in caves.
5: Hello, my name is Evgeny Padolski. I'm doing my PhD in Japan. Recently, after spending a few days underground in a cave, I became anxious about the following question. As I know, soluble rocks like limestone are soluble in a water containing CO2 which comes from the atmosphere. This takes about 30 centimeters of rock every two millenniums. But if we take into account the present high amount of CO2 in the air, can we claim that nowadays caves are growing much faster than ever before in history? Thank you.
11: So why do we find one Pong more powerful than another? And what will happen to Lascaux over the next century? Send your Q&As to question of the week at thenakedscientist.com or have a look at our forum, thenakedscientist.com forward slash forum.
0: Sorting out the sparks from the quarks. The Naked Scientists. For more information, get online at nakedscientist.com.
1: You're listening to The Naked Scientist. Now it's time for kitchen science. Now I hope everyone at home has been getting their arms out and their veins and their fingers and having a go at this um, and we'll find out just what's going on. Dave, take us through what's happening. Okay,
2: so this is a very simple kitchen science. All I want you to do is um, get an arm, find a nice obvious vein on it. If you, you haven't got any good obvious veins, find someone else's. Um, so Helen, Helen's got a few. good ones, I've got there.
1: a few, yes. Okay,
2: so then put two fingers onto the vein and then move one away up your arm and you should find that the, the vein seems to have disappeared.
1: So you start with your fingers together and yep. then split them apart by moving one closer to you. Yeah, and yep. you should find the vein looks like it's disappeared. Oh yes, disappeared. it's gone. Yep. And it. if
2: you lift up the finger which is furthest up your arm, not a lot seems to happen to it. Nope. It Nothing's disappeared.
1: Com- yes, it stays disappeared in but my case. But if you yes. lift
2: up the one which is furthest down your arm, nearest your hand, you should find... What happens?
1: It seems to have full filled back up again.
2: Yeah, it should fill straight back up again. Um, this is actually an experiment done originally by a guy called William Harvey. Um, he was a, a doctor in the 16th century, 16th and 17th century. Um, he. Came up with the idea that blood actually goes round your body. That's seen um,
1: something fairly obvious that we know of and we're fairly sure of. But I guess we haven't always known that.
2: Yeah, I mean, t- it's, it seems obvious to us now because we've, we've got microscopes we can see what's going on. But actually, the, what your blood comes out of your heart, um, goes up to your l- lung, goes up through your lungs. Then it gets spread up into these tiny, tiny little blood vessels called capillaries. It goes through those and comes back through the veins back to your heart again. And it goes out to your body through big arteries. Then goes up, spreads out these little tiny capillaries. Then and gets collected again by veins and comes back down. The problem is, um, hundreds of years ago, these capillaries were so small no-one could see them, so it just looked like the blood was going out, disappearing and coming back again. This means that an uh, ancient Greek doctor called Galen thought that um, all the blood from your arterial, arterial blood, the red blood which was coming away from your um, lungs, was made in your lungs... And also, your venous blood, the com- stuff coming from your veins, was actually made in your liver. And it was just kind of getting made there and then getting destroyed, eaten in the rest of your body.
1: So, we had two, he thought we had two sort of blood systems going on independently of each other
2: yeah and it was kind of getting created and destroyed now william harvey did various experiments including this one to show that the heart the blood was definitely flowing through your body and that experiment what it's actually showing is that the blood can't go the wrong way down your veins it can only go back up towards the center of your body it's because there's a series of little valves inside your veins which mean that it's much easier so your heart pushes one one big push it pushes the blood around and then if you didn't have little valves inside your veins it would just kind of run backwards
1: as the heart's kind of um, stopping to pump again, yeah. kind of it 's relaxing, and then and then pumping again you 'd have a sort of suck back almost
2: yeah um, but with these um, with these little tiny valves, it keeps on going and it 's much more efficient, and you waste lots less energy in your heart. Um, and he also did various other experiments, including measuring how much blood could get, the heart could pump during a day. He reckoned it was about 270 litres, which would be far too much for your, um, your um, body to be making and then destroying again. But actually, he seriously underestimated this because he thought no one would believe him that it could be pumping that much. It's actually near about tonne, 6.8 tonnes. So this little tiny experiment he showed to King Charles and his idea that eventually became what we now think is absolutely obvious.
1: Excellent. So I hope you enjoyed that kitchen science at home. A Very nice, simple one. Show your friends at school tomorrow. Have a go at it and show actually show that you've got valves in your in your blood vessels, um, doing a good job of keeping your blood going around, which I think is very relevant to the study of organ transplant that we're talking about. Now we're going to have a couple of um, questions have come in over email. Um, one for you, Dave. As okay. This is from Mike Jackson in the USA and he says, as far as I know, plastics are synthesised from starting ingredients like oil. Will it be difficult to make plastics as world oil supplies are depleted in the future? I can imagine a world where we are less dependent on oil for energy perhaps, um, but do you think we'll still need them for plastics and will that ever go away? What do you reckon, Dave?
2: Um, most of the plastics we use at the moment are manufactured from oil. You break up um, long chains, you, t- you tend to get small gases, things like ethene um, out of, um, of oil refinery you cook up um, crude oil very hot you get some useful gases you can then react them together and they stick together so you get lots of little units stick together and form long chains which are called polymers which is what most pretty much all plastics are made of now there has been a lot of research recently into other ways of making plastics both if in case we do run out of oil so there's other ways of doing it so using um, biological feedstocks mostly and also so you can make plastics which are more biodegradable because we're making these Plastics from oil in a very, a very, very, a way very alien to organic processes. Um, organic things can't break them down very well. So there have been various things, including genetic um, engineering bacteria to produce um, the precursors to making plastics or even making the whole plastics themselves and you kind of mash up the bacteria and extract the plastic and you can get a beautiful plastic out. Um, Various of these, either you can try and make a plastic like a present one, you probably couldn't make something like polythene, but there are many other plastics with similar properties which you could use.
1: And they are doing basically the same job, if not slightly better, because they aren't going to persist in the environment and, you know, c- cause huge pollution like normal plastics do. So it's the same kind of stuff, really.
2: Yeah, I think quite a lot of, uh, I think more and more of them are being used. I think even some, mo- they've been going into mobile phones these days. So, yeah, i give it a few years. Hopefully, as long as oil doesn't run out tomorrow, we should be able to get around it.
1: I've got an email here from Paul Morgan. Um, he says, great show. He always listens to the podcast. His question is, why do my saucepans that I put in my dishwasher never dry properly, unlike the plates, etc.? The pans always have water left in them, whereas the plates are bone dry. His, says, his guess is that it's due to the Teflon coating keeping the water in larger globules. What do you think, Dave?
2: OK, I think there's probably a couple of effects here. Um, the thing which dries out, what you've got to do when the things dry out, um, you're making the water evaporate. And this takes a large amount of energy. So that energy, you've got quite a lot of energy in a hot thing. If it's been in the dishwasher, it's been heated up to 70, 80, 90 degrees centigrade, comes out, it's got lots and lots of heat. What you need to do is transfer that heat to the water. The best way of transferring that heat to that water, if it was a very thin sheet all over the surface of uh, something metal which conducts heat really well, um, and so the heat should get, most of it should get to that water, evaporate the water, and it dries out really well. Um, Things like China um, conduct heat reasonably well, so if you've got a hot China thing, there's quite a lot of heat in it, and it can conduct out well, and the water should dry out. Uh, especially, and it tends to be in fairly small globules. As you're saying, Teflon is very, what's called, hydrophobic, so it's, it's, it doesn't like water. It, the water tends to collect into great big globules. So you've got to get lots of heat into a very small area, which is difficult. So at the same time, lots of heat's going to be being lost through the rest of the pan. And also, um, the Teflon's quite insulating, so it's quite hard to get heat to get through it, so it'll tend to actually go out through the uh, metal on the other side. And so, um, and so, probably that's the reason why the, the, you're not yeah, you're getting water left in your pans.
1: Well, I think that was an excellent explanation. I hope Paul, that helps you understand what's going on inside your dishwasher. <laughs>
2: Uh, I've also got a question here, for, which might be for you, Helen. Um, it's a question from David. Um, he's got a five-week-old y- daughter who yawns, um, and as I he expect, lots of
1: yawning going on all around If he's five weeks, if she's five weeks old, and
2: so so when she yawns, he yawns as well. But um, when he yawns, she doesn't yawn. Um, is so is yawning kind of the contagious yawning thing a learnt thing or a, contu- a cultural thing?
1: Uh, it's a very good question, actually. Um, I'm afraid I haven't got the uh, knowledge at my fingertips as to exactly how old um, children are when they start realizing the. Well, no, they start learning to yawn when they see other people doing it. Um, uh, because it's a really common reflex, actually, um, that. Uh, it, and lots It happens in lots of different animals. That if you see someone yawning, um, you want to yawn yourself, which is very strange. But uh, the, I think the fact that we see it in all these animals, um, including some that maybe aren't so social, so perhaps it isn't something that's learned, but maybe a bit more inherent, perhaps it just it, it starts to arrive at some point. Dave, you were telling me about the, um, dogs, isn't it? That, that uh, Was it wild dogs? Yeah,
2: that... I think some wild dogs in Africa, they, they get this contagious yawning thing. So one of them will yawn, then the other ones will yawn. And then it tends to be about the time when they're about to go to bed. So it's a nice way of getting the whole pack to decide to go to bed. So I was just thinking about the five-year-old daughter. I think very young babies, their eyesight isn't very good. They, they can't focus very well. So it could be just that she can't see you yawning. So she doesn't learn how to yawn from that. There
1: you go. That could be it. Perhaps if she, once she can see you properly, you can yawn in front of her and encourage her to go to bed. <laughs> about all we've got time for for this week but we'll be back next week looking at how technology is helping us in all walks of life we'll hear about computer software that can tell us how old you are so perhaps you won't have to show id in the pub anymore plus we'll find out how it might soon be possible to recover data that you thought your computer had lost and how identity thieves might unfortunately use the same trick to get hold of your bank details
2: We'll also find out how science is taking the virtual world of Second Life by Storm from a virtual hospital to the Naked Scientist HQ. And in Kitchen Science, i will be trying to find out if you could charge an MP3 player with a lemon.
1: All that remains for me to do is say a very big thank you to our guests this week, Peter and Constantine Cuscio, and Stephen Kren on the phone. And thanks as well to our production team this week, Ben Valsler, Petro Minch, Mira Sinterlingham, Dano O'Carroll, and of course, Dave Ansell. So don't forget, you can email us with your science questions, chris at thenakedscientist.com. And of course, there's also Question of the Week. So if you have any questions that need special attention, get in touch by emailing Week at thenakedscientist.com. So do join us next week. Until then, goodbye.
0: The Naked Scientists are sponsored by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC, and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.